I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. We have with us on The Truth of the Matter today a very special guest, our brand new director of our Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at CSIS, Max Bergman. Max, so glad to have you here. This is your first week at CSIS, and I had to hit you up to get you on the podcast. It's great to be on the show and great to be at CSAS. Thanks so much. Max, so I, I want to talk about Europe. I want to talk about Ukraine, obviously, and what Russia's doing there and the latest. But first, let's we've got a big French election on Sunday. Macron versus Le Pen. It's a rematch between the two of them. Le Pen has gained significantly in terms of her popularity since the last time she ran, but the polls are showing that Macron might squeak by. So what, what's your take on all of this? Well, I think it's an incredibly important election. I think people have taken a little bit of a deep breath after the first round of voting in which Macron performed relatively well, I think better than, than some expected. But I think let's be clear, if Le Pen wins the election, it will be an earthquake within Europe uh, because uh, her perspective on the European Union, on Europe, on globalization, on integration of France with the global economy will really be upended. It will be, I think, maybe not quite on par with Brexit, but will have uh, real implications for the future of Europe. And I think when we think back to the 2017 election, Macron winning really sort of stemmed what was sort of the movement of kind of a far-right populist tide, both in France, but also uh, coming on the heels of Brexit. And I think it, it would, might have, you know, looking back, hard to see where the European Union would be right now if Macron hadn't won. And I think you could make an argument that his election in 2017 saved the European Union. In this case, I think him winning wouldn't necessarily save the European Union. I think the European Union is strong enough, even with a Le Pen victory. But I think there's also a, a potential positive side if Macron wins, that if Macron wins, I think there's real potential that we'll see major advances in European integration over his tenure. And that's in part because Angela Merkel is no longer German chancellor. Macron sort of famously gave a famous speech in the Sorbonne after he was elected, laying out all his plans for the European Union. And the response from Berlin was effectively nine, was to indicate, no, Merkel was not interested in, in Macron's plans. And so we've seen Macron sort of throwing out a lot of ideas that are not really getting anywhere. But now we have a new array in Germany, very pro-EU uh, politicians in, in Schultz's government, but also with the Greens. But then also differences throughout Europe with Draghi in Italy, uh, a new uh, government in the Netherlands still head by Mark Rutte, but, but slightly less uh, hawkish when it comes to austerity measures in the European budget. And so I think there's real potential for, for, for France uh, and for Macron to kind of really push some of his ideas forward for Europe uh, if he were to be reelected. Uh, he may not make some headway on the domestic agenda because I think we'll see real domestic polarization. But on the European agenda, there could be a real potential for progress. So this is a really pivotal election. Uh, the future of Europe is at stake. And I, I, I think everyone is, should be watching it very closely. So, Max, one thing that's of primary concern right now, given Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is that Le Pen has indicated that she would pull France out of NATO to an extent. She said that she would continue to defend all countries in Europe if, if one of them was attacked. But she seemed to indicate that she would weaken the alliance by pulling out in other ways. Can you explain that and, and what that really means for NATO and for this current conflict we're dealing with? Yeah. And, and you know, France's history with NATO has, has been rocky, de Gaulle, 
pulled France uh, out of NATO's military command, and that was only established, reestablished under Sarkozy. So we have a situation where France, I think, would return to kind of being on the outside of NATO, outside of European security. But I think the difference is that you also wouldn't see France being a real leader when it comes within the EU. You know, it would be one thing if France says, "Okay, we're not going to deal with NATO, but we really want to bolster the European Union. And at least then Europe is getting a degree of collective security. Uh, That wouldn't be the case here. And I think you would see France really go it alone. Now, the question is, I think you would see a situation where there'd be a lot of pushback within France, within the French foreign ministry, defense ministry over those sorts of ideas. So I think you would see a really raucous tenure under Le Pen over the future of France's foreign policy. And I think it, it, you know, whether she would make that a clear priority, whether she would make that uh, a major fight right away, I think would be remain to be seen. And then it's also a big question of how the other European countries would react. How would her relationship with Schultz, German Chancellor Schultz be? One of the things that I found pretty surprising in the run-up to this election, actually, was Schultz writing an op-ed, essentially coming to Macron backing and saying a Le Pen victory would be a disaster. So I think that wouldn't be treated uh, very well. So I think the implications for Le Pen for winning would be a real disaster for NATO, would be a real disaster for European security, potentially. It would really upend a lot of the status quo. And I think that's in part the appeal of her campaign. And I think that's something we have to recognize, that her campaign has real appeal, is really pushing back against kind of the status quo within France in the same lines that we've seen in the U.S. with uh, elections on the uh, with politicians on the left and the right arguing against kind of more centrist political figures and gaining real, real progress that way. So it would be a very turbulent uh, period if, if Le Pen would win. And it's worrisome because essentially what she's saying uh, is what de Gaulle said is that, you know, French troops will, cannot be commanded by other nations. And so that's part of the basis of her formulation. And then on top of that, she has also clearly and verifiably been a Putin supporter. So it puts France in a difficult position if they have new leadership under Marie Le Pen when it comes to this current conflict in Europe, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think one of the really interesting things I found in the in the debate that happened on Wednesday between Macron and Le Pen is that Macron really went after Le Pen on her ties to Russia. Uh, of course, the attacking her for a Russian-connected loan to her campaign, not this campaign, but the previous one. Right, and it's still unpaid. This is an unrealized loan that she took from a Russian bank of, I think it's 15 million or something like that? Yes, and I think it's actually a Czech bank, but connected to Russia, you know, the kind of classic uh, moving money through through complex means to kind of- uh, It's a workaround. Uh, yeah, to obscure <laughs> their, their, their true ownership. But Macron, this wasn't a huge issue back in, in 2017, but I think the issue of Russian interference, particularly after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a major topic. And I think, I think politically part of the rationale for Macron is he's trying to hold, uh, right now it looks like he has about a 55-45 lead and he's trying to hold that. And so bringing up Le Pen's ties to Russia, her connections, her you know visiting Putin right before the 2017 election is really to sort of, I think, keep centrist and those that may be unsure about Macron or, or, or may, you know, might be persuaded that Le Pen has normalized to, to show that she's, she's really of the extreme. So I think what it would mean for Ukraine, for Russia, her election, I think is really concerning. Now, Le Pen has tried to normalize herself, has said we should, uh, the, the French people should back the president. 
in his efforts uh, on Ukraine and Russia. So she has seen this as a liability. But then if she were to actually get into office, what that would mean, I think it would you would have to be really skeptical that a strong European approach on sanctions, uh, which has been critical, and the EU has to sort of vote unanimously to approve and, and to keep the sanctions in place, I think there'd be real concern that a Le Pen government would say that sanctions are in the interests of, of the French government. So uh, I think that would have uh, real concerns about the unity of the West. So this would have real impacts on, I think, the war, on sanctions, on European unity, on Europe's ability to act in the world. So just absolutely massive implications uh, all around for this election. Max, things are moving fast with Ukraine. What's your take on the current situation? Well, I think I've been a little surprised, actually, that there hasn't been kind of more celebration over Ukraine's kind of victory of the quote unquote Battle of Kiev, that Russia's withdrawal from its initial massive offensive which was intended to effectively you know, divide the country in half to decapitate the Zelensky government to end democracy in Ukraine, um, was beat back. And so Ukrainian democracy will survive. And I think it's clear that whatever this recent offensive that Russia is pursuing uh, does not pose the same existential threat that the initial invasion did. And so I think the fact that democracy is going to survive in Ukraine is something that, that I mean, that we should all applaud. And I think it, all credit goes to the Ukrainians, but also to the support that the West and the U.S. and Europe have uh, provided Ukraine, but also in, in the, the strong economic response in terms of sanctions. So I think that's number one. Number two, I think what we see now is a pivot by the Russians to sort of try to get out of the quagmire that they're in. That now there's been, uh, I think, for perhaps domestic political reasons, domestic political purposes, a real effort to try to claim this was all about the Donbass from the get-go that this is a war about trying to uh, respect the independence and sovereignty of the Donbass region, which is clearly not what this was about. This was about a regime change war. So the fact that the that Putin is sort of downshifting his, his war aims, I think, is a reflection of their military losses, but also the need to sort of claim some domestic victory at home. So I think we're still in a very precarious moment where what Russia will try to do is basically try to gain, uh, hold the territory that it currently is currently holding, especially in the south, and will try to uh, reclaim control of the entire uh, Donbass region, and also uh, really attrit the U- Ukrainian forces to uh, try to do as much damage as possible to Ukraine's uh, industrial base and to its military, so that basically Ukraine is then forced to come to the table, uh, and that Russia can sort of show its people, look at the map, we've gained more territory. Territory. This war has been successful. Don't look at the casualties and the actual costs, but you know, just look at the map. And I think there's a real danger that that will work to some degree. That if they were to, if that were to occur on the battlefield, I still think it's 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 to be determined that Putin will be able to spin this into a success. And I think it's imperative that the West. Um, not uh, continue to sort of put the economic and pressure on Russia, but also to continue to provide the military support that has been so vital, I think, to maintaining Ukraine's fight. Any chance of a ceasefire anytime soon, in your view? Well, not anytime soon. I think where we are now is that basically the talks between Russia and Ukraine are kind of on pause to see where this, this new offensive goes. And I think to be clear, the Ukrainians have shown the will to fight. I think when you see war crimes uh, happening, uh, as they did in Bucha, that only adds to the motivation on the part of Ukrainians to not give up an inch. And so, you know, I think 
in some ways, just a total tactical error, just from a, a pure military perspective to commit war crimes like that really tells Ukrainians what they're fighting about. Ukraine also has the manpower advantage, which is, you know, you know, this is a decision that Russia is making not to kind of fully mobilize their entire population to engage in this fight. Ukraine is fully mobilized. And then when you see the amount of money that the U.S. is providing in terms of security assistance, the announcement yesterday about massive amounts of artillery now being provided to Ukraine, which will allow them to really hit Russian targets from a greater distance, so much further than the kind of anti-tank weapons that we've been providing, you know, that can make a real difference in, in, in this fight. So I, I think it's still really up in the air whether Russia has uh, can, can remobilize its forces in, in the sense of, of taking on what is still a very complex campaign to try to make real military ga- uh, gains against the Ukrainian forces, which are quite dug in and quite prepared for this sort of fight. So I think this is still a big question mark of how this will play out. And then we'll see how it plays out. And when we get to that stage, if it's in a week, if it's in a month, if it's in four months or six months or a year, I think that's when talks and negotiations will will really recommence after there's sort of a period of exhaustion. But I, I think we're, we're, we're now into kind of wave two of this war. Let's talk about the aid for a second, U.S. aid to Ukraine. We're talking on Friday. Uh, it's April 21st. And President Biden yesterday authorized an additional 800 million to Ukraine, which brings the total that we've given them so far about to about 3 billion. Are we doing enough? Are we getting the right stuff? And is it really going to help? And how much more are we going to need to do? Yeah, great question. So, you know, this is a, a something that was very in some ways personal to me when I was in the in the State Department. I uh, went to Ukraine twice in 2014 when basically we had no security cooperation relationship with Ukraine. I was working uh, with Undersecretary Rose Gottemiller at the time on Bureau of Political Military Affairs issues, secu- uh, State Department security assistance. And we basically had to build a security relationship from scratch. Uh, the Ukrainian military was incredibly corrupted. It had been totally depleted. There was lots of infiltration of potential you know, Russian agents. There was a lot of concern about providing them with certain advanced technology systems that that would just simply being, you know, providing that system to the Russians. But we built a relationship basically from scratch. And I think what you're seeing in the last few months is the benefit of that relationship that has established where we are providing a, a tremendous amount of equipment. And what is so significant here is when you look at the numbers, they I think they kind of conceal things to some degree because we're not providing super high end equipment. We are providing, you know, you know, ammo, things that go boom very quickly, artillery, anti-tank weapons. Uh, and now Ukraine is surpassing Israel in the amount of security assistance that we're providing. They're now the largest recipient of U.S. aid. And that's happened not in the course of an entire year, but in the course of a few months. A lot of people have pointed to, well, why didn't we do more before the war? And I think that's a great question. I think that the U.S. government needs to go back and look at its processes and procedures. And what we would realize is that we're really bad, actually, providing security assistance prior to a crisis. And the reason why is because what we're doing with right now is we're literally taking Javelin missiles uh, out of the hands of U.S. soldiers that are you know, maybe deploying to the Pacific or in the Pacific or in, uh, in the Middle East or at certain bases around the world and saying, OK, this is going to Ukraine. Now, if you try to do that before the war, 
What you have happening is an entire bureaucracy says, wait a second, one-star generals say, we don't want to lose our equipment. And there's also statutory limitations that only $100 million can be used by the president per year uh, to take from military stocks to send off to Ukraine. Everything else has to be taken, has to be bought from uh, U.S. defense companies, come off, has to be produced, and then shipped over. And there's, you know, this isn't World War II, you know, Lockheed and Raytheon don't have the product, our production lines aren't humming the way they were in 1941 or 1942. So the Lend-Lease, uh, I think, vision doesn't quite work the same way. And we don't have stockpiles of equipment ready to go in crises. So a lot of this is just a total scramble. And I think what the benefit of having a, a, a crisis is it really shapes everyone's minds. The bureaucracy suddenly realizes, okay, the priority is to get stuff to Ukraine, whether you are in UCOM, CENTCOM, Indopaycom, it doesn't matter. This is going to you know the top national security priority. And you really get that whole of government effort. But it's really hard to make that happen before before the war begins. And I think you saw an effort to realign and to get that in place. But so I think what we're doing is a tremendous amount. And I think what we need to now think about is, you know, how do we backfill the Eastern European countries that are now also really who have the kit that Ukrainians can really use this old Soviet equipment and get that to Ukraine? Uh, but then if they're given, if Slovakia is giving away its, S, its S-300 system, then shouldn't it have uh, high-end air defense, you know, at the ready? If Poland is giving away MiGs, shouldn't they be, you know, potentially getting advanced fighters? And the, the problem we have is that there's never been an effort to recapitalize Eastern European militaries and really get them off Soviet equipment. So this is going to have a lot of downstream effects. I think there's a lot of uh, potential funding that EU, NATO, the U.S. is going to have to do. And I think the uh, Ukraine supplemental is likely going to come uh, forward before the Hill. And I think it's imperative that state and DOD make, make really large requests here to make sure that we can backfill for not just Ukraine, but other European countries as well. So how do you think the, this conflict has changed the international security calculus of the United States and NATO vis-a-vis -vis Europe? So I, I think it's, it's demonstrated, I think, to everybody when you start seeing tanks rolling across a border, rolling to villages when a major European capital is getting pummeled by cruise missiles, that the prospect for war is real and that we need to take it very seriously. A lot of times the potential for invasion of, a, of another country seems like a science, something out of science fiction. But we're seeing the science fiction play out and, it, and it's very real. And this is especially true if you're in the Baltic states, if you're in a frontline European state, war has come home to Europe. And so I think that has really sharpened the minds of Europeans that they need to take defense and security very seriously. And I think when Germany, when Olaf Scholz on a Sunday morning, right after the invasion, announces that Germany suddenly is going to spend 100 billion euros on defense, is going to meet, uh, get up to 2%. I think that that's going to have world-changing dynamics, that Germany becoming, once again, a military power, and I think this funding will, will lead to that, will, I think, shift the dynamics within Europe, will shift the dynamics globally, where a country like Germany being that strong militarily. But I think we're going to see that throughout Europe, where suddenly Europe is taking defense and security very seriously. They're very committed and they're, they're focused on uh, it's not some sort of mythical thing. They're not just doing it as a favor to the United States. And so I think this might also lead to potential rebalancing to some degree in the transatlantic relationship where Europe comes to the United States a bit more as equals. 
And we saw that a little bit just frankly on sanctions on, you know, the presumption was that the U.S. was going to really have to push the, the weak need EU along on sanctions. And that was the case before the war. And then the war happened. And suddenly you see the EU giving political uh, direction to the European Commission to start to really move on sanctions. And then suddenly they were getting out ahead, out ahead of us. And so I think what we'll see is a potentially more balanced transatlantic relationship where we're going to have to take European concerns maybe a tad more seriously than we have taken them in the past. And I think that's all to the good, all to the benefit of the transatlantic uh, relationship overall. Max Bergman, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter on this extremely complex set of circumstances in Europe right now. Thanks so much, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 